0: Post-modern and post-Christian are both terms that the the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic... How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to Cringeology. We are uh, diving in today. And I'm really excited because the introduction to this series, which was released last week, actually got quite a lot of feedback. Uh, Some of it was excitement. I'd say actually most of it was excitement. Most people were pretty stoked. Um, Some of it was confusion. Um, People didn't know what the word fundamentalism meant or or different things that I put in the list of the seven ideas we're going to be exposing throughout the series. And then there was, you know, there was the rare but vocal fury expressed as well, which, you know, hey, I'm thankful for all of it all right guys so (laughs) it's all good man so again yeah this is cringeology guys exposing the seven false ideas that kill Adventist mission and today we begin this journey of exposing the seven false ideas that float around Adventism and kill our missional capacity uh, and so the first idea, if you if you haven't read or listened to the previous podcast, maybe go back and because that's the introduction. So what we're going to do today is we're going to tackle this the first idea on this glorious list, right, uh, of the seven, um, and that is the belief that God dictated the Bible, right, fundamentalism. So I'm going to do this in a really simple way because I'm not writing a PhD here, all right, guys, and I'll have some links at the end, um, in the show notes and on the blog if you want to like actually dig really deep so i'm going to keep this simple and i'm just going to ask three simple questions number one what is fundamentalism number two why is this idea false and number three how does it kill his mission um so that is going to be our journey today so let's go ahead and, and find out guys now before i i do that um I want to take a moment to, once again, thank all the patrons who are helping the Story Church project. Um, Thank you guys so much. I just got a message this morning that I got a new patron um, who's helping out as well. And that really, really means a lot because it allows this project to expand. Um, It's one thing to just, you know, post a blog and a podcast link on a Facebook page. But you got to understand, guys, that the way the algorithm works now is nobody sees that, right? Like Facebook algorithms don't actually show people uh, blog articles and podcasts and things like that. Unless you are someone who regularly visits my Facebook page and the algorithm knows you like my content, um, then you might see it on your wall. But most people will never see it. Uh, and so the only real way for people to get their hands on this content is to do paid advertising It's the only real way to do it. Um, and so through the um, through the patron uh, option, wh- what that does is it enables me then to actually do that paid advertising and reach Adventists, you know, in the UK, Canada, America, Australia, all across the globe, but really focused on that Western um, perspective or that Western context, which is where I speak mostly from. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much to all the patrons. And also big shout out to the Haystack. Um, the Haystack, guys. You got to check it out. Um, the Haystack is the voice of Adventist millennials, right? It's the voice of millennials in the Adventist church. Um, and it's absolutely amazing. I've been working with them for many years. I mean, I, I don't necessarily... I used to be their blog manager. I'm not anymore. Um, but I still love to be in connection with them because they're doing some really innovative and cool stuff. So that's the Haystack, guys. They talk about life, talk about culture, they talk about theology. You got to check them out, man. Go to the Haystack. <clears throat> dot org and um and give it a give it a visit now let's go ahead and dive in uh, i want to talk about this you know idea number one this false idea number one what is fundamentalism right so that's what we're going to talk about today um, what is fundamentalism why is fundamentalism false and how does it kill in this mission um, so first i need to clarify something all right because like i said there was a bit of confusion i need to clarify something um, let me let me clarify what i'm not talking about fundamentalism. Okay. Listen closely. Fundamentalism is not the same thing as the 28 fundamentals. All right. So I want to make that really clear that if you're worried that I'm here to attack the 28 fundamentals, relax. I'm not. Um, in fact, none of the seven ideas that I'm about to expose in this series have anything to do with Adventist doctrine itself. If you've heard anything uh, I've said in the past or read any of my books related to Adventist doctrine, you know that Adventist doctrine is something that I fundamentally... Ha-ha. Fundamentally. Um, love. It's it's beautiful, cohesive, and stunning, guys. I'm not talking about that. Fundamentalism, more properly defined then, is a form of Christianity. I'm quoting here from... Um, uh, I think it's Google Dictionary, which is kind of like from the Oxford Dictionary. Um, fundamentalism is... A form of christianity and i quote that upholds belief in the strict literal interpretation of scripture end quote uh now you might be thinking what's wrong with that so just follow along fundamentalism emerged in the early 1900s as a way of combating the theory of evolution and liberal theology it it doesn't mean it didn't exist before in different sort of ways but that's kind of when it became a big thing And so what's happened is that over time, fundamentalism has evolved, right? It's, it's, it's morphed in like a gazillion different directions, which makes it really difficult to narrow down. But as far as Adventists are concerned, there appears to be one central tenet of fundamentalism that has had the most influence on our thought and our culture, and it impacts our local churches everywhere. All right. And here's the belief. Are you guys ready? Here's here's the false belief that we're really going to hammer down on today. The belief that God verbally dictated the inspiration of scripture word for word. So when I'm talking about fundamentalism, it's this core belief that I'm mostly referring to, right? The verbal dictation. It's basically an approach to scripture that operates off of the idea that every word in the Bible came straight from heaven. And as a result, the words of scripture must be taken at face value, resulting in a really strict approach to both the text and its application. Now, in case you're still confused, here's a good definition from gotquestions.org. The dictation theory says that the Spirit wrote through the agency of human writers who were fully under God's control. With the authors in a state of relative passivity, God dictated every word written with pinpoint accuracy. In this way... Human personality and human error could not interfere with God's intended message. The human writers did not personally contribute anything to the content of Scripture since they were passive instruments of God's will. And that is the end of the uh, definition or description from GodQuestions.org. So that's basically what I'm talking about when I talk about fundamentalism. I'm talking more specifically about the verbal dictation, which not all fundamentalists, especially today, are keen on, but that's the main thing that I'm I'm, I'm hammering. Now, to make this easier to grasp, here are some common phrases you might have heard from church folk that are rooted in fundamentalism/slash verbal dictation as a model of inspiration, right? So you might have heard things like this. Every word in the Bible is there for a reason. Maybe you've heard that. Or when you memorize the Bible or a Bible verse, make sure you memorize every word in the right, order and sometimes we do this right like we test each other uh, you know let give me give me your memory verse oh you messed up the, the 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 goes over here not over there you know what i mean like we do that right um here's another one god inspired the words of scripture every word is sacred uh here's a classic god said it i believe it that settles it there's bumper stickers about that one um Modern translations of the Bible are false because they change the words and you're not supposed to change the words of scripture. You might've heard that. Um, Or we must embrace the plain reading of the word of God. Now this is another way of saying just read it as it's written and don't try and explain it away with things like context or culture. Now, with that explanation out of the way, I think we've pretty much answered the question, what, what am I talking about when I'm talking about fundamentalism or what is fundamentalism? So let's go to the next question. Why is this idea false? Because some of you listening to this might be thinking, dude, I, I believe that. And are you suggesting that, that that's actually not true? Because if you are, I don't think I like you anymore, Pastor Marcus. Um, so look, hang in there with me. You can call me a heretic when I'm done. Um, let me talk about why this idea is false. I want you to imagine God revealing his messages to his prophets, right? How does he do it? Does he tell them the message and leave them to choose their own words based on their own culture, education, and personality? Or does he actually tell them what specific words to use? If he gives them the specific words, then this means every single word in the original text is directly from God himself if he gives them the message but lets them choose the words then this means the overall message is what's most important not necessarily every individual word so then which of these concepts are you most comfortable with as an adventist did god dictate every single word or did he allow the human authors the freedom to express his message in their own words now in most adventist churches i've been to most people would say hey I'm more comfortable with the idea that God dictated every word. And so I'm going to read three statements. And, and these are three statements that I reckon in most Adventist churches, people would say a hearty amen to, all right? And all three statements are false. But people, you know, you say this in a church, you're going to get lots of amens. And I'm going to prove to you how they're false later on. But here's the first statement. The Bible is written by inspired men, which makes it God's mode of thought and expression. While humans wrote it, God, as a writer, is represented. In a sense, the Bible authors were like God's pen, which he used to communicate his will to us. Now, you you, you share that quote in, in lots of Adventist churches, particularly the more traditional ones, and like I said, you you'd probably get quite a few amens. Here's another one. It's not just the men who wrote the Bible that are inspired, but the very words were inspired inspiration acts on the man's words and expressions when under the influence of the holy ghost again man you share that in sabbath school hallelujah amen all right one more the lord speaks to human beings in infallible speech in order that man may receive his words without error and free from human contribution again you might get lots of amens if you said that during your next sermon But here's the thing, this theory, as noble and pious as it sounds, it doesn't really fit the facts. First, writing style and vocabulary are different from author to author in scripture. And if God dictated to each author word for word, the writing style would be uniform. But it isn't you can get a sense of education levels and personality differences and and from the way that different authors wrote scripture there's there's also grammatical irregularities there's spelling errors there's minor contradictions like was it two demoniacs on the beach or just one i don't know right and and like some books like luke for example um were the result of historical investigation as well which kind of throws a monkey wrench at this whole idea that God was dictating everything word for word. If you don't believe me, let me read to you the introduction to the gospel of Luke. Here's what Luke says in verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been thought. Now, did Luke write his gospel because the Holy Spirit took possession of him and dictated every word he wrote? Obviously not. Luke said it himself. He researched, he interviewed, he compiled, he arranged his account he wasn't sitting in a room somewhere with his eyes rolling in the back of his head and his hand moving you know, all on its own as he was writing, You know, as he was envisioned writing. He, he, he researched and put his book together. So is Luke's book somehow less inspired because of that? What's clear is that God was behind what Luke was doing, but God wasn't dictating what Luke was doing. And, and that's the important thing to keep in mind here is, you know, we're talking about we're not talking about whether or not God inspired the Bible. We know he did. We're talking about how. So if you want to read up on more of this, I've got some sources I'm going to put in the show notes because I'm not going to go on and on and on. It's a big conversation. And so I've linked some, some things, some resources, books, podcasts, articles that you can take a look at. Um, but I think for now, we've said enough that we can move on to the heart of the matter, right? How does this belief kill Adventist mission? Now, on the surface, this belief that God dictated the Bible word for word, it doesn't seem like too much of a big deal. But the devil's in the details. So let me share with you three key ways in which this belief damages mission. Number one, it makes people rigid. The common denominator among fundamentalists of all stripes is a commitment to being strict, literal, and unbending. Any attempt that threatens their iron grip on quote-unquote truth is interpreted as compromising. And this makes sense because if people believe that God dictated the Bible word for word, they come to see him as this inflexible dictator. And if the God you worship is an inflexible dictator, then that kind of image is something that you come to reflect. Now, the strictness culture among the fundamentalists appears to do two things. First, it attracts people that are already rigid and authoritarian to its camp. So in the end, you end up with a church full of unsavory kinds of people with fanatical personalities. And second, it makes people who are generally balanced more rigid as a result. So if you think, for example, right, if you think every word in the Bible is dictated, you also develop a very black and white view of what the Bible is saying. And anyone who disagrees with you, even on the most minor point, is interpreted as a deceiver, as disobedient, as a false teacher. Education and theological training are something that people come to hold with suspicion. And questions that challenge long held beliefs and traditions are discouraged because, as far as fundamentalism is concerned, God said it and that settles it. End of discussion. And that's a that's a that's a classic sort of fundamentalist thing. It's very difficult to have discussion. And as a result, what happens is the church community becomes less capable of interacting meaningfully with diverse ideas, worldviews, and perspectives. Everything becomes about being right and wrong. As narrowly defined by the fundamentalists. And over time, young people abandon ship, the church ages, and any newcomers are quickly scared away by this Manichaean absolutist culture. So, how does this belief kill Avon's mission? Well, there's one way it does it. Number two, it results in anxious religion. Now, when I say this, I don't mean that all fundamentalists are running around needing Prozac. Right? Most of them don't feel the anxiety, uh, at least from what I've been able to, to see from fundamentalists that I've interacted with. They, they don't necessarily feel anxious themselves. Um, so when I say it results in anxious religion, I'm, I'm talking more about the, 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 the way the beliefs are expressed and structured and not necessarily the person's emotional state. Um, so let me give you an example. Have you ever heard a group of Adventists talk about Deception. Now, if you're not careful, you can leave that conversation feeling like there's no hope for anyone. So I'll give you an example. I recently attended a meeting where a lady said that Satan deceives us by giving us 99% truth and 1% error. And another person in the meeting added how Satan can quote the whole Bible and just change one word. There you have it, right? That word for word. Just change one word and boom, you're lost. Now, how can anyone hope to be saved in this scenario, right? Um, well, it appears that the only safety is to tighten your rigidity, narrow your views even more, and hold anything that is even slightly different in extreme suspicion. So, consequently, fundamentalists tend to exaggerate things by taking them to extremes because they're—you know—this is this is this is where the anxiety comes in. Is you start to see a lot of exaggerations. So in Adventism, these extremes often revolve around things like diet, dress, Sabbaths of servants, media, and worship, but they also spread into areas like traditional standards and theology. And essentially, the fundamentalists, what we see when we're talking about exaggerations, is they take what might be a useful idea. For example, here's a very useful idea. Avoid caffeine. That's a that's a useful idea. Now I know some of you out there you love your lattes and stuff. And um, um, when I when I say avoid caffeine, I guess what I'm pointing at more is you know they don't be addicted to this stuff. You shouldn't be addicted to anything. Um, so avoid it, right? It's a useful idea. Um, But in the fundamentalist mind, what they do is they take a useful idea and they morph it into a test of salvation. So now all of a sudden it's not simply, hey, avoid caffeine, it's not the best for you. It's you drink coffee, you won't go to heaven. So you can see the sort of exaggeration there. This is also the kind of mentality that fuels the King James Version-only movement, right? So never mind that people don't understand that Shakespearean language from a thousand million years ago. Um, We're going to use it anyways because it's the pure, unadulterated Word of God. Well, in the mind of the KJV-only people, it's the only translation that translates the Bible word for word with strict and literal precision, Which, by the way, it doesn't. Moving on though, because that's not my topic for today, the end result of this kind of culture is that it tends to attract only the kind of people who already agree with them. It's tone deaf. It's a tone deaf community that tends to obsess over minor issues like drums and cheese, um, but ironically ignores larger issues like racism, sexism, and abuse within the church. You won't hear fundamentalists harping on about that too much, but they will make a 20-part DVD series on how those drums in your church are going to send you and your children to hell. So what happens is younger generations are increasingly absent in these kinds of churches, and the church's capacity to reach their secular neighbors also disappears, because you develop this culture that's so rigid and tight and boxed in. Nobody fits in. Number three. It ruins our theology. So the first one was it makes us people rigid. The second one was it results in anxious religion. The third one is it ruins our theology. And here's the thing: like perhaps the worst part of this fundamentalist culture is that while e- while in evangelicalism, the fundamentalist exaggerates and overapplies of the Bible. Adventists also have over 40 books and 5,000 periodical articles written by the church prophet Ellen White that can be used to create the most rigid, cold, and coercive religious system since the Middle Ages. I'm doing a little bit of exaggerating myself, or am I? Um, so, what happens is, Not only do we become hyper-strict when it comes to scripture, but whatever we can't find there, we can find in her writings and use it to hammer people over the head. It's the perfect system for the fundamentalists, right? Now, because of the fundamentalist influence, here's what happens. We come to see Ellen White's inspiration as also being verbally dictated, meaning every word she ever spoke or wrote is 100% the word of God. And what happens is context is thrown out the window in the name of Faithfulness to the written word, you know, in between quotes. And over time, myths, exaggerations, and hyperball give birth to a theological approach to faith that strangles our young people and excludes anyone who isn't capable of coming into line with the endless list of rules we impose on them. And in the end, what we end up doing is ruining the beauty of our theological message by applying it in a way that can only be described as overkill. It can be too much of a good thing, and that's basically what fundamentalism does. Now, since we're talking about Ellen White, I think it's important to know two things. First, if the fundamentalist view of verbal dictation is true, then we run into some massive problems because Ellen White employed editors to comb through her writings and make them better, and she also updated her writings over the years. So if God had inspired her writings word for word, why edit and update them? Wouldn't that be the same as changing the word of God? but if God had inspired her thoughts then clearly the words she used were her own and she was free to update them if better language or more insight became available to her over time so with that said I suppose it's only fair to note the second thing and that is what did Ellen White think about this topic so I want to share with you five key quotes that are super helpful to understanding how Ellen White perceived this whole issue and you're gonna notice that some of these are in direct contradiction to the statements that I mentioned earlier. And yes, I did that on purpose. So, here's the first statement from First Selected Messages, page 21. The Bible is written by inspired men. This is Ellen White. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say that such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's pen men, not his pen. End quote. Now that's in direct contradiction to a statement that I read earlier that I said lots of people in the church would say amen if you said, you know, the writers of scripture are basically like God's pen. You know, a lot of people say amen, yeah, you know, the word of God. um, Yeah, no. She totally disagrees with that. Here's another one. Also from Selected Messages. You can also read it in Manuscript 24 from 1886. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Wow. Now, remember, I mentioned a statement earlier where I said, you know, you read this in most Adventist churches, people will say amen. And the statement that I had was, It is not just the men who were inspired, but the very words of the Bible that were inspired, right? That was the statement that I shared. And what I basically did was I took Ellen White's statement and I changed it. (laughs) And you read that in most churches and people will be like, amen. But here we have her actual statement. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. It's the men that are inspired. And then she goes on. Inspiration acts not on the man's word or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. Uh, Let me read another one. This is speaking of her own ministry. She says, Although I am as dependent upon the Spirit of God in writing my views as I am in receiving them, yet the words I employ in describing what I have seen are my own, unless they be those spoken to me by an angel, in which case... I always enclose in marks of quotation. And that's also in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 278. And and here's the thing. It's an important point to note because even in Scripture, there are instances where God says, you know, you're going to write this word for word, like the Ten Commandments, you know, and this passage in I think it's Jeremiah where he says, don't omit a word of what I'm about to tell you. You know, there's, there's specific instances in Scripture where God does say, word for word, I want you to write this. But that's not how the whole thing works. That's, that's the point, right? Um, here's another one, from also from First Selected Messages, page 20. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. And everything that is human is imperfect. It's pretty heavy, hey? It's pretty heavy, especially if you've grown up with the opposite view, the fundamentalist view, and you were led to believe that Ellen White was behind that view. She wasn't. Um, And I love this, you know, the Bible must be given in the language of men. And it's like, come on, you know, these KJV only people, it's like, you can take all of your arguments that you have and you can save them, I don't care. The only thing I care about is this, can people understand it? And the answer is no. And do not quote that ridiculous study that said it's like fourth grade language, all right? Like fourth grade reading level. It's like fourth grade reading level for who? You know, like for Shakespeare? Like I know people who've got doctorates who can't read the KJV, all right? So it's just, it's ridiculous. People can't understand it. And the only reason why people keep fighting for it is because they have this strict fundamentalist word-for-word thing going on in their heads, Um which is not true. The Bible must be given in the language of men. And, and what that means is not only that it must be given in, in the correct language, uh, um, but it must be given in the correct language at the correct time. And language evolves over time, which is why Bible translations need to be updated as well. Here's one more. First selected messages, page 22. The Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that the degenerate senses, the dull earthly perceptions of earthly beings may comprehend his words thus is shown god's condescension he meets fallen human beings where they are the bible perfect as it is in its simplicity does not answer to the great ideas of god for infinite ideas cannot be perfectly embodied in finite vehicles of thought end quote you know i'm gonna stop there no actually i'm gonna keep going i'm not finished yet (laughs) but um here's the thing you can see from Ellen White's writing that she didn't have this verbal dictation, this super strict thing, and 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 this is why like this is so important. Like when you realize it's not the words themselves that are inspired, but the thoughts. What that allows you to do is it allows you to read the Bible and think, what is the spirit behind the words, right? Like what is it communicating to me? Instead of getting hung up on every single little word and and getting into the you know like so sort of the Pharisaical letter of the law, you're you're looking for the spirit behind the law, and that's a much more meaningful way to live your faith and your application of scripture um, it's more relevant it's more um, meaningful it's more healthy right and it's more true because it's the way God intended it now in Ellen White's day there was a contemporary of hers named David Paulson who wrote her a letter and this is what he said in his letter He said to Ellen White, I was led, and I quote, I was led to conclude and most firmly believe that every word that you ever spoke in public or private, that every letter that you wrote under any and all circumstances was as inspired as the Ten Commandments, end quote. And that's how people, you know, there's a lot of people in the Adventist church today who still hold that same exact view that David Paulson is writing to her about. Now, Ellen White responds, And here's what Ellen White says, I quote, My brother, you have studied my writings diligently, and you have never found that I have made any such claims. Neither will you find that the pioneers in our cause ever made such claims. She continues, and she basically points him to the first chapter of the Great Controversy where she talks about the inspiration of Scripture and how it works, and she continues saying this, The Bible points to God as its author, yet it was written by human hands, and in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the several writers. The truths revealed are all given by the inspiration of God, yet they are expressed in the words of men. And that you can also find that in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 24. And that's the end of that quote. Now, here's the thing. Is Ellen White saying that the Bible is merely a product of human will and is therefore not infallible, authoritative, or divine? No, she is not. Ellen White clearly believed that the Bible's message was infallible, even if its language was imperfect, right? She was the infallibility of the message, right, of the narrative, not not of each individual word. Um, She held that it was ultimately the word of God and that our faith should be rooted in it. Um, and she did, but she did not teach that it was merely like this human product, like the neo-orthodox were. You know, I don't know if they were doing it in her day, but they came to do it later on, right? It's just a human product. She did not teach that. Rather, she thought she 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 taught that it was a divine human product. And so, what Ellen Wright, what Ellen White rejected wasn't the reliability of scripture but the exaggerated theories of inspiration that gave birth to fanaticism and these hyper strict applications that missed the spirit of the words while obsessing over the words themselves and this is why ellen white never fell for the kjv only movement by the way And she used a variety of translations. And she used editors and updated her own writings. And she never claimed infallibility for herself throughout her entire ministry because she didn't have this verbal dictation model of inspiration. Now, sadly, fundamentalism has made its way into Adventism. And consequently, we've developed a culture that is more concerned with doctrinal purity than with relationships. People end up more susceptible to an us-versus-them mentality. And here's the thing. People under a fundamentalist worldview find it really hard to just lighten up. They tend to be tense, defensive about anything that is remotely different to their perceived ethic, and ultimately they feel like any new converts have to become like them in order to truly belong. So in these sort of scenarios, emerging generations feel completely out of place. Even if the members are friendly, you still can't fit in. And in some extreme cases, church members prefer not to do evangelism because they're concerned with preserving their sense of purity and do not want the ungodly to come in and corrupt the church. So how do we get rid of this culture, man? Well, I think we need to call the issue by its name and have a conversation. And by that, I don't mean the general conference. I mean local churches, right? Local churches have to do this. Because if some big wig in an office does it, it's not going to make a difference someone's just gonna you know put up a youtube video and argue with them and like it's just endless ping pong game we got to get into the local church and have this conversation and pastors need to be equipped and trained to address these issues with your churches in a redemptive way by the way I'm, I'm currently working on a free powerpoint that you can download and use for training on this particular topic. So just watch this space. Maybe I'll have it later on this week and I'll add the link and promote it on Facebook and you'll, you'll see it there. So just watch watch for that to come out. But, but finally, leaders need to be committed to having a balanced view of inspiration and because when our view of inspiration is balanced, it results in a church culture that is more relaxed more able to lighten up and able to adapt and meet people where they are. We become committed to the spirit rather than the letter and begin to look for ways to be relevant, to meet people where they are. And, and the Bible also becomes a lens into the heart of God rather than a rule book that's supposed to get us to paradise. In short, our faith remains just as serious as ever, but we can relax more, enjoy life more, and love more. And, and we find ourselves liberated from these restraints, that the fundamentalist regime imposes on us so for those of you who are pastors and leaders like i said i'm gonna have that powerpoint ready for you later on this week hopefully um that can help you train and equip your leaders to see scripture and inspiration in a more healthy balance but of course this is only the starting point all right Make sure you supplement this with more resources for people to follow up with. So I'm going to link some in the bottom of the blog and also the show notes. um, But I'll go ahead and mention some. So Reading Ellen White by George R. Knight, absolutely fantastic book, really helpful. There's also Ellen White's Afterlife, um, which touches on the fundamentalism more. Reading Ellen White's More Practical, Ellen White's Afterlife is more, it gives you the more academic background. 1919: um, The Untold Story of Adventism's Struggle with Fundamentalism by Michael W. Campbell's a new book. Wow, so good! Check it out. Um, also, check out the Adventist History Podcast with Matthew J. Lucio. Um, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Sorry, Matt. Uh, Lucio, Lucio. Um, I don't know. But he's got some episodes, especially his latest ones on the 1919 Bible Conference. Check all those out. Um, I think you can even go back to the Protestant Civil War, which is just before those, and he starts touching on it there. Um, and then I've got a link to an article by Dennis Fortin, Ellen White as a Prophet, Part One: Concepts of Revelation and Inspiration. Also linked in the show notes and the blog. So here's the thing, guys. Next week we're going to talk about frugalism and the false belief that grace is not enough. What in the world is frugalism? Why did it, why did I say frugalism and not legalism? Isn't that the real thing? Um, but I'm going to talk about it next week, and you'll see why I use that word instead of legalism. But thank you guys for hanging out today. I hope that this was helpful. I hope that some of you found a sense of relief and liberation, even for your own spiritual walk. And that you can take this and now grow and learn from it and build a much more meaningful, healthy, balanced, beautiful faith as a result. So I'll catch you guys next week. Take care and God bless.